All right. Um, so yeah, are you ready? Yep. I'm I'm excited today. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> Me too. Me too. <laughs> I'm excited today. All right. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. And today my guest is the amazing Larissa Cool. She is the chief executive and founder of Pulse Branding, a neuro branding agency founded in Shanghai, China. She's a nerdy soul that's committed to empowering personal and commercial brands with cognitive science and neurotech for the purpose of expanding their positive impact on humanity. Um, we're going to have an interesting conversation today because we will be talking things around neuro branding and tech. We'll be talking also about the science of love and compassion, which I have some very interesting questions on. Um, we'll talk about, you know, marketing and branding because I did read something on your website around that. And we'll talk about the Pulse Instinct app. Um, I pretty much tried to look for that, but I couldn't find something. But today's going to be an incredible conversation. I think that you guys are going to enjoy this. Um, and without further ado, this is me and Larissa. First of all, I want to say thank you for coming on the show again. It's This was in a rush, sort of, right? It, it, it was really fast. All of this happened in the space of like two weeks or something like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty like lightning speed. <laughs> exactly. But I guess when you're in quarantine, there's nothing much going on. So <laughs> this could actually happen a little faster. Yes, yes. For people who are listening or watching, Shanghai is currently in a very heavy lockdown. And Larissa is not having a lot of fun. Well, everyone is not having a lot of fun around that. <laughs> hey, you don't um, know that. <laughs> true, I don't know that. Are you having fun in lockdown? I'm a pretty introverted person, so I do okay. manage to have quite a bit of fun at home. Oh, oh great. So um, let's kick off the, the session today with your origin story. So just, you know, to give us like, a, like an introduction to how you got to your current career position. Okay, that's a bit of a long story, so I'll try to keep it short. Basically, I ever since I got into college, I've had sort of a parallel process going on in my career. I started my first startup when I was in college, where I had established my first startup called Larissa's Bakery. We were the first three cupcakery in Shanghai, and we specialize in delivery. Um, so that was my first foot into the startup world. And one year after the business really blew up and then I got it set up in a way where it's um, automatically run. I have uh, five staff and we have a central kitchen. And so while that operation has, has been established to be automatic, almost very low maintenance, I thought, um, hey, I, will, I think at the time I was, what, 24-ish? And I just did not want to uh, invest like all of my 20s in the kitchen. So I thought I would definitely venture out a little bit, see what's out there. And um, I was definitely a very lucky soul. Uh, I got a job offer at this company. Uh, it's a luxury cosmetic company called Palika, and they were selling at Sephora. What they needed was somebody to replace their former um, distributor in China. I happened to become that person and wow. became uh, the only person based in China uh, in charge of all of the operation. While 
um, basically coordinating all of the operation between the agencies in Shanghai and then the uh, headquarters in France and in Hong Kong. So that nice. was uh, one of my first job, kind of full-time job into the corporate-ish world. Mm. And it was really beautiful learning experience for two years. Uh, I think that set me up on a place where I kind of developed a level of standard because of that. Yeah. And about a year and a half into that job, it was becoming obvious that the company was being uh, sold. And mm. while, while seeing that situation was happening, I wasn't feeling 100% sure whether I wanted to stick to that opportunity for longer time or not. So I thought I would use the, uh, use the spare time of my life at the time to sort of establish another operation, which is when I started my second uh, sort of startup operation. Uh, I became an Airbnb host and I flipped around, I don't know, 10, 20 apartments in the nice. span of two, three years. It was wow. uh, an okay. incredible, incredibly fun experience, but also it comes with a lot of um, grittiness. I think that experience mm. gave me a lot of grit, having to um, take care of some of fairly ridiculous scenarios that I would never have imagined could happen into my life. Um, so that happened for a, a few years. And in the meantime, while that's happening, um, the, the company Talika China got sold. I decided not to move ahead into the, um, the new uh, company. So mm -hmm. while working on the Airbnb, I later on got employed by another uh, company being in charge of uh, three fragrance brands, Ferrari, Liu Zhou, and Atkinson. These are also luxury fragrance brands. And my cosmetic experience lined up with that job perfectly. Also sort of like a one-man office show um, sort of situation. And while that was going on, the Airbnb was going on. And I think about two, three years after that, I thought, you know, like I was making quite a good living, but I was so deprived of purpose. Like I had no idea what I was doing and I've never been that depressed ever in my life during that period of my life. So after a very long and dreadful period of my life, I decided that I'm gonna kind of like start my life with a clean slate, just clear all of the things that doesn't bring me the sense of fulfilling and joy and really explore something new and fun and completely sort of out of the uh, my usual go-to direction. And that's when I became a video producer for a year. And that was honestly one of the most fun uh, journey, I have to say. So that's when I got a taste of kind of like the lifestyle of a freelancer. After that period, I realized that, okay, I really love being able to travel and work nice. 100%. <laughs> and I also got really hooked on scuba diving. And that like, and that was like, I tell you, that's a rabbit hole. Like I got, I, I got started and I got hooked, like so addicted. Every time I go somewhere that has a dive spot, I would clear everything else. It's just like all my mornings are for diving. And then my afternoons and evenings are for kind of like, 
casually, you know, like exploring a bit of the local scenes, but the priorities are 100% of scuba diving. So I loved it that much at the time that I wanted to sort of explore a completely different lifestyle because before then I lived in Shanghai completely and it's a really great lifestyle, but I just thought there's more to there's a lot more to see. So then I decided to explore the option of having a, a freelance lifestyle while traveling around, while kind of exploring where I, I want to be uh, for the next period. So I started being a freelance uh, brand strategist, and I also do graphic design, brand identity design, and uh, sort of self-taught web design along the way. And that gave me a huge amount of experience and totally opened my eyes to something um, that I love, that I didn't know I could possibly love as much. And the idea at the time was actually to live uh, in Southeast Asia and in China half-half. But, you know, fun fact, Corona hit. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that option went out of the window. So um, seeing the situation, I realized that, okay, like if, if the universe has kind of provided me this platform and given me this rare opportunity where I don't have the choice to be a travel maniac, then it's a perfect time for me to really explore the part of me that could settle down, that could go steady in my life and then mm. could actually commit to a career without the distra distraction of that hedonistic lifestyle. Uh, so yeah, after actually quite a long period of like traveling, exploring um, options and then contemplating moving away from Shanghai, uh, the, the lockdown happened just at about the perfect time to make me reflect my choices. And one of the conclusion is that Currently, there is no other city that I want to live in other than Shanghai. So I'm committed to Shanghai for the first time in my life. And in the meantime, I'm also very committed to pursuing the passion in the creative field, combining my other areas of uh, interest and passion. And mm. just after a few months of reflection, strategic calls with all of my friends and mentors, the idea of post branding came into place. and. Here we are. Wow. <laughs> I feel like you figured out life very early. You, you didn't have to worry about a lot of things because, I, I mean, some of the decisions that you had to make that early in life, it just sort of, um, you know, it's not something that a lot of young people would, um, would try. That approach is not the regular style. Um, so I think, it, one, it's a great testament to you as a person and your character and how you've grown and, and developed as, as, as an individual. But I am curious though, when you moved from corporate to the creative side, like how was that transitioned for you? Honestly, in hindsight, it was pretty, it was pretty rough. Mm. It was because like the first aspect of it is the lack of financial stability, right? And the resilience in that kind of environment is something that has to be trained. It has to be taught. And it really is something that went completely over my head for a long, long time. And it's just part of the journey. You, you try something and then you, you, you always hit the walls, right? 
But sometimes the bliss that that I had in my 20s is that I didn't know it was a wall because nobody is there <laughs> working with me, telling me, oh, this is so rough. This is yeah. like, that's, that's so much suffering. It's like, when you didn't know you're suffering, you're kind of just like, well, I guess it's just another day in the office, Absolutely. right? Like, it's just, it's just the startup life. You don't know. And so it wasn't quite, um, it was quite, it was quite challenging because I, I was depressed. I was not able to get out of bed for a very long time. And I didn't know what was going on. Only in hindsight, now I'm looking back, I was like, oh, damn, that was a very intense period of my life. But that also um, really, that's, that experience is a major contribution to why I think the way I think, right? Because mm -hmm. to really dig deep into who you are, what you want, to dive all the way into all of the unknown, it's, it's a very scary process. And for me, however, I decided to do it, not because, oh, it would be fun to go through all of these struggles. Why not? Right? I went into it because I was in so much pain. I was so miserable and I was so purposeless. I thought the only way for me to get out of this process is through this intensive, almost obsessive uh, reflection and research and that's that happened to have turned out to be a very good strategy i think i'm lucky in that sense yeah wow In intriguing and i asked that question because i recently had a friend who was um an astrophysicist and he's also now transitioned into um content production and cinematography and i'm like hold on how do you go from being that to this you know and he's just like i i don't know i just feel like this is more in line with what i want to do um so i think it's it's quite refreshing when i talk to a lot of young people as well um and people it feels like it's easier for people now to make decisions towards this is what i want to do that really makes me happy and i feel like that is necessary um in this day and age and I would, I'll use that to segue into what I really want us to talk about, um, the concept of neuro branding, right? So your agency um, offers this service to clients and customers here in China. Um, first of all, how's, how's that business so far? How's that business been so far? It's pretty okay. okay. I can't complain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's good. So let, let's bring it down to neuro branding. What is neurobranding and why is it significant? So neurobranding, as it's pretty um, self-explanatory by its name, it's a combination of neuroscience and branding. Um, it's, it stems from this concept of neuromarketing that was established, oh God, I don't remember the years, but a while ago mm. and has been very popular amongst all of the 500 fortune companies around the world. Uh, and it studies the, because like, if you, if you think about this, right, if you do anything to do with uh, customers, anything yes. to do with human being, actually, yeah. intrinsically, you want to figure out what makes people tick. Absolutely. Right? When you, no matter if you do sales, you do marketing, you do branding, uh, you do product development, all of it, right? You do it for the people. So it goes down to what the people really need. And as time goes by, science has pushed us to a place where we are we are in this unprecedented time that that we have so much knowledge about the human mind and so 
my obsession has always been the human mind. I started being obsessed with philosophy, um, realized a lot of philosophers ended up killing themselves and I didn't want to go into that. So I kind of, so I pivoted my interest into psychology, um, figured, you know, hey, it's, it's, it seems a little more pragmatic. Mm. And I, uh, I was obsessed with it for, I don't know, like by now it would have been 15 years. Um, oh, so okay. it's the kind of obsession where I would just constantly read everything about it. And I'm really sucked into that world of knowledge. Um, and then when I discovered uh, neuroscience, I realized, oh, wow, there is a whole other layer to the human mind. And it is so it is even more tangible than the, the studies in psychology. Right. So for me, it's like, wow, this is taking me to a new place of acceptance, a yeah. new place of self-awareness, a new place of body and mind alignment. So naturally, I wanted to use that because it helped me so much in my personal growth and it helped me so much improving my neuroplasticity through all of the technique that has been proven to be functional. Nowadays, I thought, you know, like I've been in marketing for 10 years. I've been uh, working with clients from my first business in 2000, uh, I think it was 12, 2013. It was like, such a no-brainer to combine these two together. I just sat there and I'm like, hey, when you do marketing and branding, you want to get to people's mind. You want to make them feel good. And there is this particular science that studies all about what makes people feel anything, right? Yeah. Why don't we bridge them together? And it was actually really funny because I didn't, I didn't learn about the concept neuromarketing and neurobranding until I searched neuroscience marketing because when i had the idea i was like i have to find out like if if i can think of it somebody has must have thought about it <laughs> at one point right like i am not i am not the smartest human being on earth like i am 100 percent confident stating that i'm not the smartest person on earth so if i could think of some idea like that i assume somebody else already did too and you know love google that's what gave me sort of this new direction and i the moment i found out about neuromarketing and neurobranding I just got really, really, really sucked into it because at the time I was doing brand strategy and I was doing design work. And in my freelance experience working with clients, one thing that really bothered me is just how intangible the whole process is, right? I create a design, I create a, a visual asset and then I show it to the client. And then really it comes down to just me and the client or a few other friends going like, oh, I like this. Mm, I don't like that. Why? Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say, but I just feel like I preferred this one. And everybody has the same ambiguous feedback and that yes. just drove me nuts. I studied science growing up. I'm not somebody who would like be happy with ambiguity from all different <laughs> angles, right? Like data. I need data, exactly. <laughs> and, and then lucky us, the data is out there and the data has been collected. It just... It's not as popular yet for people to use these data in that sense, right? Like, so that's what got me into this idea where I want to like eliminate the ego process in our creative meetings in the sense that, oh, I like this better. I am the CEO of the company, Yeah, but, but, the, but the CEO is probably not even a target audience at all. Right. And <laughs> you're just simply not in the same uh, persona bracket. And yeah. so 
when you're sitting in the meeting and a group of people that are not the target audience sitting there, like trying to establish who has the better taste, who has the authority, it just seems so it becomes a ridiculous. power struggle. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Exactly the power struggle. But when you're serving the client or the or, or the market, your ego is completely irrelevant. Absolutely. Right. If you want numbers, you want the market to like it. And then you can't know if the market will like it by not asking them and collecting yeah. data from them. And and by that, I I need to specify, I don't mean just any data. I mean, accurate, emotional data. Right. And that itself already sounds ambiguous enough. How do you do emotional data? Right. And that's what neuroscience is for. It's literally there to measure and make it to make emotions presentable in a numerical way, right? Wow, great. Um, <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's a very, like you rightly say, a lot of people are not aware of how this um, comes into the commercial side of things. Um, personally, for me, I, I think I came by neuroplasticity um, last year, I believe. I was reading the works of, um, I don't know if you know him, Dr. Andrew Huberman. So he's, uh, oh, okay. Oh, if, oh yeah. well, well, I think everybody knows him at this point. <laughs> I really right? like his work. Yes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what got me intrigued was it was about a study on sleep and how there's like a lot of myth around sleep. You know, oh, if you, if you don't sleep now, you can just cover that sleep during the day and he's like no and there's data and science around these things so that was where he got me into neuroplasticity i'm like hold on what exactly is this thing it sounds close to what i've known and worked with for a lot of years um, i don't know if you remember i was telling you about insights so what i was exposed to um, around marketing is more of decision making and emotional intelligence and behavioral psychology but I had no idea about neuroplasticity until I came across Huberman's work. And I'm like, oh my God, now this just makes more sense to what, you know, how we can use this thing logically um, and in business. Because also as a cinematographer, it's one of the things that I'm always very peculiar about, which is there is a science to the colors that I use in my films. There is a mood, there's there's a reason why, you know? And um, rightly, as you say, I think it's it would, it would help if a lot of businesses actually leveraged on the science of neuroplasticity to, um, to, to aid their marketing and things like that. So you also mentioned something on your website, um, which is, branding versus marketing right so first of all is there a difference between neuro branding and the conventional branding that every every company does right so uh neuro branding is basically branding that's supercharged by neuroscience if if i'm a business owner now how can i how can this help me commercially in terms of the differences and how I can apply this to my business? Um, I mean, I know we've sort of gone over like a very surface description of that, but, you know, let's say I'm, I'm a 500 fortune dollar company owner right now. And I say, okay, Larissa, sell me on this newer branded. How, you know, how would you give it to a one-on-one layman explanation, uh, you know, the, the application of, of neuro branding? 
So the application of neural branding comes in many layers. It depends on absolutely the resource that you have. Idealistically, is you can apply fMRI uh, machinery into your consumer insight program, which is when you take um, recordings of brain activities when they're shown different visual assets, right? That is one of the most um, accurate way to measure data, but obviously it's not the most accessible seeing that fMRI is this giant machine that you have to slide into while staying horizontal. Right? It's, a, it's a very heavy uh, medical machine that's hard to acquire. So we actually had this program called Pulse Insight and it's using this more commercial-based but still very high fidelity EEG machine. So that's something you wear on your head and it has 16 nodes collecting the brainwave and then um, using that brain imaging tech to give you a data on the emotions that you're having while you're shown different visual assets on the spot. You can directly see, uh, we also combine it with eye tracking technology so you can directly see where the test subject is looking at and exactly at that moment, how they're feeling. What's their level of engagement? What's their level of excitement? What's their level of pleasure or uh, confusion, frustration? You could uh, you could actually see it from uh, real time from our recording. And another layer that we are currently implementing is with our new app called Pulse Instinct. So this is a lot more uh, accessible tech that we're developing, which is designed to capture the instinctive preference of the tester. When you show them uh, visual assets, instead of showing them, say, like in a traditional survey, like, oh, which color do you like? Boom, 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 for uh, visual assets. And people go like, well, I don't know, like this one, <laughs> right? Um, so there is a... There is a level of accuracy to it, granted. However, there is also room for improvement because as, as science, uh, enough research has shown, people do go through this um, uh, decision fatigue, for example. And there's a lot other biases and a lot of second guessing that people go through when they're taking these tests. When you get collect answer from people, a lot of the time they're not giving you the answer from their core self as their core identity. A lot of the time they're giving you the answer as their projected ideal identity. Like if I were the perfect version of myself, I would prefer this thing. And they so they project a certain expected values onto their decision-making process. And that makes the data really corrupted because when people's really scrolling through Taobao, you know, scrolling through TikTok, you're scrolling through Instagram, you are not in that. You're in your natural state. So you're yeah. in this day where you are the most authentic to yourself because you know yes. no one is watching, no one is judging you and you are not even quite fully aware of what exactly goes through your head at the time. Yeah. And so with Pulse Instinct, this is exactly the kind of um, reform improvement that we are exploring, which is to give people really um, thin sliced options. So we turn a bigger, more overloading, decision process, and then we turn it into a A-B selection process. And in the meantime, we give the tester a limited amount of time so they can't actually overthink their decisions. They have to go right at their instinct. If their intuition says A or B, they have to go follow that because they simply don't have more time to hesitate. If it hesitates, 
it just passes. You miss your window of making the selection. Um, and that's also one key thing is that if you don't know which one you prefer, you probably don't like them either. <laughs> right? Great. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's like if you're debating, do I ask this girl out or do I ask that girl out? Yeah, chances are you don't like either of them. <laughs> mm, mm. Right? Yeah. yeah. So this sure. is the uh, this is the idea that goes behind our approach. We have uh, different tiers of collecting this kind of raw emotional data, this raw uh, instinctive preference data, and we implement it based on that. We merge that whole data into our design process. So it's very similar, very very similar to the scientific methodology, which is yeah. you uh, you observe, you hypothesize, right, and then you. Uh, you design the uh, experiment, you go collect data, and then you validate. And then based on your validation, you, you realize that, oh, this is aligned with my hypothesis or it's not. Yeah. And then you go into that loop again. And for us, it's basically the same process. We, we do our research, we get our briefing done, we understand your target audience um, and what, they, uh, what their profiles are like. And then we go into uh, researching that category of target audience and then from that data and we will compare with your competitors and then basically a really exhaustive research phase then we create the first yeah then we create the first round of draft which is the hypothesis okay. stage right and then we provide that draft as the hypothesis and then we go into validation process we we put it into the test we collect that neural data and with the data that we do collect we have very numerical way of looking at the results and the preferences of the people. And based on the data, we go into the second round of hypothesis and that loop goes on until we are happy with the results. With the yeah. results. Wow. That, yeah, that's, a, that's a very thorough approach to making. And I think for any business, I think it would pay. It's, it's, a, it's an investment that will pay in the long run because you will have very factual coin-sized data and you don't have to start searching through thousands and thousands of things. Um, you, you talk about preferences and I mean, th for me, that's, that's something that I'm very interested in. So my approach to preferences has always been through the work of Carl Gustav Jung, which uses introversion, extroversion, thinking, all feeling. So it's, um, and this thing is called the insights personality tool, which is in a way similar to um, Pulse Instinct app that you also have. But um, I think one of the major differences is one, it's not as science driven as yours. That's for a fact, we didn't have any machines on anybody. Um, but what the insights tool was, is it's a series of questions that is 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 designed in a very, critical way to make you answer the question um, as best as possible. So it doesn't give you, oh, it's a yes or no, right? It induces. So what this thing is doing is, I think there are about 60, 65 questions, right? And it will give you the same questions in a different way, in a different way, just to try and get you through that whole, you know, like you said, my projected self. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I liked insights was one, we never described it as unlike other tools out there where people say, oh, um, this is my, my type. Like, this is who I am. This is my type. No, we, 
we described it as preferences. And the reason I say that is because preferences gives you an extra sense of accountability, right? It's easy for someone to just go, oh, well, it's my type. There's nothing I can do about it except me like that or just move on, you know? Um, but yeah. And you find that people bring this into business, into personal relationship, into, you know, everything. And they don't change. The point of insights was to encourage growth, personal and professional development. So when we use preferences, this person is hearing, oh, this is how you like to do things, right? But, you know, we're not telling, it's not a case of, oh, this is who you are, but rather this is how you'd like to do things. So now it opens that channel of, oh, if I'd like to do things this way, can I possibly change that to get another result? So Paul's instinct, right? Obviously it's a very efficient, sophisticated method, right? But you're still working on this project and it will only get better from here. So is there like a, you know, are you going to be the next Elon Musk? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Uh, I think many people wish. Um, it's not really, it's not really how I approach life. Mm. So the way, the way I approach problems really, it, it, I don't have KPIs. Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so I don't chase goals. Mm. Okay. In the sense that it's really hard to describe this because I, I I don't feel like there is quite a way to verbalize um this thought process of mine. So mm -hmm. um so I'm gonna refer to something more um more popular, I guess. So we are talking about preferences and then there is the identifying whatever, who you are, da, da, da. So yeah. one of my favorite things to, for a period is my Briggs test. Like I don't think it defines me or I don't really let it define me, but in the sense, I really like how it explains your functioning. So one thing they have is called, uh, they, they evaluate your primary function and then your mm. secondary function. I forgot exactly how they word it, but for me, my, my top function is intuitive thinking. I see. Um, so what that means is that I don't really understand quite mm. how I come to my conclusion but you until way after that I validate it, where I have to so. validate the two other people. Then I, then I kind of like reflect onto my intuition and mm. then I figure out what that journey was really like in my mind. I'm a very... Um, intuitive person and I just kind of and I may be Go. quite impulsive too and I mm. don't fight it so I think one thing that makes me a little bit weird I would say or unusual is that I don't really have a lot of uh, external values that makes me hesitate on my intuition I have this tendency to just go like this feels right and so there is no other way like it makes me feel like sometimes that I'm a little bit obsessive, <laughs> but in reality, that is just how I function. And when I lean into my intuition, it turns out that I always tend to have a more satisfactory results. And so right. what that means is I don't really set goals. I just see, I envision something and then 
you go with I, it. I just follow whatever flows through me. Nice. If I envision something, I go, um, I don't know how to do this. Google, help me. Right. And if Google helped me and I'm like, OK, Google, you're telling me this is going to take three years of expertise or like 10 years of studying to get this thing down properly, then I'll be like, OK, friends, help me. Who, who can do this? Um, so this is just how I approach things. And there's not really like a specific where do I see myself in three okay. years or five years? I see yeah. myself to be happy, as driven as I am and as eager to fulfill my life as I currently am. And that's just about it. Like, I, I really honestly don't care if I'm the Elon Musk or I'm super rich or I'm like, <laughs> or whatever. It would be great. <laughs> but what matters is, am I doing what makes me feel fulfilled right now? And that's yeah. the only thing I really measure. And am I doing it in a, a way that of, like reflects my true authenticity? It's important to cap that off by saying that there's no right way or wrong way to what you've just described. I think the most important thing, as you said, is are you doing something that makes you happy or is this helping you achieve your goals, right? And clearly this works for you. And in insights terms, so we would describe your preferences as sunshine yellow, right? The benefit of sunshine yellow is they have a high preference for extroversion, right? And they are feeling. So, you know, they get to a place, they're inspiring. The very short time that we've known each other, what do you think my strongest preference would be? Do you think I'm high on extroversion or introversion thinking or feeling? It's um, hard. It's hard, people. I'm telling you. I don't, yeah, I typically don't try to think slice people like that mm. because I get a lot of... Um, misjudgment about myself as well okay because um i am i am like i described i'm always in that moment right i'm flowing with the moment and the situation so each situation that i'm in there is a different version of me present they're yeah, all part absolutely. of me but it's a different version of me present so that means if i'm talking to people there is that version of me that's sociable Mm. that's present you're yeah. never gonna see the version of me that's introverted because then i won't be talking to anyone right you, Simple you as that. <laughs> exactly i won't be talking to people if i'm in my introverted mode and if mm. i am talking to someone i will naturally walk out of my introversion right it's yeah. just simply how i function and so people always um i'm actually an introvert i'm bit of an ambivert, but more leaning towards the introvert so people really always um give me that challenge they're like no way no way you're an introvert I'm like, oh, <laughs> I kind of I think I get to say I get to say in this case <laughs> so that's why I don't try to uh, I don't try to, to put like, it that make way that kind of judgment I yeah see. because I see it, what do I know you know what um. do I know the, I would say, in my opinion, the good thing about insights, once again, is that, like I was saying, insights doesn't tell you, or oh, you're like this person, you're that. So the core um, idea of insights is that we all have everything inside of us. But like you said, based on you know what you're doing, where you're currently at, and your experiences, we leverage on whatever one that we need at that time to achieve success. That, that's the core of insights, you know? It's just like not putting anyone, rightly as you say, in a box of this is you, this is you. It's just, we all prefer to do things in a certain way. And, you know, as you're 
situation changes, you might get to change those things. So I really look forward to, you know, to leveraging on the Pulse Instinct app. I'll try to look for it and see if, if I can access that. Is it possible? Uh, we're is actually it... still in beta period. Oh, okay. That's why you cannot find it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're, I see. We're in the process developing it. Uh, we're hoping to have a have the beta version launched, and along with um, our website in hopefully a month. Great, great. I volunteer to be a tester if, if that's if that's on the table. <laughs> of course, yeah, we'll be we'll be honored to have you. Great, great. Uh, okay, now let, um, I also want to talk to you about the the science of love and compassion. Um, and, and I'm happy that you've also come across um, Huberman's. So is love just butterflies in your belly or is there a science to it? <laughs> so that's the question where we have to take back to what is science? Right. Okay. Science is simply the exploration of the unknown. Like that's how mm. I see it. It's the exploration of what we don't know. And we try to make it known in a sense that's tangible and uh, testable. So anything, there is a science to anything just as there is an art to anything. Mm. So I totally I'm a big fan of the science of love, obviously, because I'm very closely attached with neuroscience. And that is uh, one of actually the key motivating factor for me uh, in my whole life journey um, in the sense of cognitive science curiosity that I have. Um, so for the science of love, obviously, I believe there is it. And it's been scientifically proven that it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't believe in science of love, then we can't have like then we're stuck in a discussion that's pointless. So let's yeah. assume uh, for the condition that there is the science of love, and it's a it's it's one of the topic that's the most uh, fascinating because I personally believe the height of human value, um, not even human value, just the height of value system, in my personal ex uh, experience and understanding, is evolution. The evolution of mankind, the evolution of other animals, the evolution of the planet, the evolution of our galaxy. So what is the role of love in that? I see it as one of the key natural selection-driven elements in the whole process of evolution. Because we are evolved in this way from the chimpanzees in the jungles all the way to where we are now through a lot of biological instinctive reactions that's neurobiological i would say right so of course the feelings of love is a complete massive complex system of concoction of different hormones that's in our body that drives us to this sounds really dry really really boring but I find that to be actually one of the most romantic thing in the world, because if you look at love, it's the feeling that makes two people unite together to create life, to create the baby. And you can't evolve without the creation of the next generation, right? Mm -hmm. And the love of a mother to a child is what protects the, the kid, making sure the kid has the utmost healthy environment to grow up that's beneficial for the evolution, right? 
And all of the process, like I can go on and on about the role of love in the process of evolution, but I think you get the gist of it. The idea is that it's the thread I see that really connects the species into their own advancement. And it's not just in human being, right? There is, for example, one of my favorite hormones is called oxytocin and Mm. uh, people call it the love hormone, the cuddle hormone. And Mm. it's, it's one of my favorite, like it's just, just out of curiosity, why why is it your favorite? Well, because I, after studying it, it's just like, I know that feelings that it gives me is Mm. simply the most fulfilling and pleasurable. I see. Right. Uh, Unlike dopamine, unlike some of the addictive, addiction hormone that gives you that instant boost of uh, a sense of accomplishment right yeah. and that makes you want to pursue it and makes you want to keep chasing the goals um that is to create a sense of yearning which i also love but for me the sense of satisfaction and peace and tranquility that oxytocin really induces in you is just so satisfying i'm like it's just sheer joy mm. that's how i see it it's it's real bliss right and comparing all of the different feelings. For me, that is my favorite experience. And I know, I would like to think most people also have it as their favorite one, which is why love is such a undying topic in the world. But I also came into touch with a lot of people that are very um, career driven in the sense that they're very, they're the chasers. They want to get to the top of the corporate. They want to get to the top of the top of the corporates. And then for them, the climb is is more important than anything. They don't care about families and they don't care about having kids, right? And and that's the way they choose to live. And my theory is that they are also very driven by hormones, except that they're not really, they don't prefer the feelings of oxytocin, right? So they don't prefer to invest their time to chase that hormone. They wanted to build the dopamine. They wanted to build the other um, kind of hormones. And that's completely understandable. I just personally see myself into the world of having that more holistic um, human to human uh, connection blissfulness. Okay. I have recently finished this audiobook called Science of Love actually. Um, and there are plenty of these uh, research, for example, uh, which one is the most fitting? Let me see. There are actual research on marriage status, and people mm. actually have the capacity to predict with 90% accuracy from 10 years ahead whether the couple will have a successful marriage or not. Just based on, yeah, I'm actually, uh, I forgot the research name, and uh, but the, the the idea is that um, the researchers were looking at videos of the couple's conversation just by simply analyzing their uh, conversational pattern and then breaking down their emotions. They can mm. predict with a 90% accuracy whether that marriage is going to be successful it's gonna work. or not. They did a study where it, it shows for couples that believe in destiny, yeah. they're less likely to work out than the couples that believe relationship is work. because. When you believe it's destiny, you see the relationship as more of a set in stone 
stagnant situation. You decided this is a binary system. You're either the one or you're not. So、mm-hmm. if I feel like something's not working, then that must mean you're not the one. So getting out of here, right? But in reality, is everybody is a very. We're all such fluid being. We're all growing and we're all shifting and molding ourselves and our、uh, each other in the different、yeah. situations, right?、Sure. Like everybody. Um, at least the ones that grow will mature into a different person as they as time goes by. So, it, it, by default, when you have two human beings going through different journeys, they will have frictions. They will have times where they're more far apart than ever, right? But that doesn't mean they can't end up together. Yeah. Right. So the moment you believe, oh, if we're so far apart, that makes us not destined to be with each other. Then you're gonna have a really hard time finding someone that will enforce that belief system of yours in the long run, because、mm. time goes by, situations happen, life is not always rainbows and butterflies, right? So, if, for people that believe in the、uh, relationship is two people working on the similar goal, going towards together as partners, that、mm. has a much much higher success rate. I feel it's just a it's a decision thing, and the reason I say that is because the process of a Of a male trying to woo a female, there is quite a lot of behavioral change going on that's not native to the male, also the female as well. So if you make decision based off of just that alone, which is why you find that in a lot of relationships after a couple of years. You know the the man is like, oh, you're not the woman I met before. She's like, oh my god, who are you? And things like that.、Um, so you know that that was what I was saying in terms of being data driven by things like this. When people say that, oh,、um, love is is、uh, you know you just get butterflies in your belly and things like I don't believe in that because I don't think it's true. I, I think it's just、not? a neuro- it's just a neurological response. So no, what? I, no, I know it is a neurological response. Yes, it, it's 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 valid. It's real, right? It's real, but it's not. I think it's very superficial how society has made it seem like.、Um, once you get that butterfly, that's it. And the reason I say it, it's it's not only butterflies is because there are a lot of factors that you need to consider. Am I medically compatible with this person? <laughs> Do we have the same financial goals? I hear you. Do they want kids? Are they going to be okay with my family? Are they okay with traveling around the world and things like that? You don't. Those type of decisions, you don't. You, you know, they don't rely on butterflies in the belly, and that's what、You're、will sustain. Yes, that's what. Okay, yes, yes, but you still need to have the conversation with this person. You know, and if people just make that decision based off of every oh, swept me on my feet and things like that. Oh my God, he's so charming, and there's a <laughs> so that's what I mean by it's not enough to make、um, yeah, to make an、sure. informed decision on things like that. I think it's a it's a very interesting topic that you raise actually because I. I think everybody has like very different opinions about、Absolutely. what this journey is, and that's the、uh, that's the beauty of it, right? Like that's why、yeah. um, I think the butterflies is a stage, one simply one of the stages of love. It's as real as when you are 
a uh, hundred years old together, watching the sunrise and watching the sunset together, right?、Mm. And it's it's just part of the journey. Just because it's the first phase doesn't make it less real. Yeah,、and、absolutely. I I personally love that. Like it's it's like how could you if you go into a relationship without feeling the biological sensations of love,、mm. and you're not you're marrying. Yes, you are committing to a positive life or building、um, a a partnership together. Yes, that's that's completely still、uh, the case. However, I wouldn't call that love. Yeah, right. Yeah. We are called, marriage is not love. Love is a marriage. Like these are two separate things. Marriage、yeah. is a a partnership, and yeah,、um, and love is a emotional state and the connection. Right,、mm. and it's it's a it's like. All of the feelings that goes through you when you're experiencing love in all of the different stages of love, they're all as real as as anything itself, right? And so I, based on, I used to also have a, a sort of、um, preference against some of the feelings, and I also used to kind of、um, evaluate it less than what it is. I, I don't know if that makes any sense,、uh, especially、mm. when you're in Shanghai, you're dating, and it's like, you know, sometimes you get flooded with different theories and different culture, and you get it gets really disorienting, right? But, but I think the beauty of love is that it is the one most easy to grasp, almost, but also the hardest to grasp、uh, measurement that you could have in this、mm. disorienting environment. Right, this. If you feel love, you know it. Right. If you feel loved, you know it. Like you、mm. can't. People sometimes people feel like they can stop. They can think themselves out of loving. And I thought that's always a very interesting approach to things because I personally don't experience that as something that's realistic at all. Like if you love somebody, you can never think yourself out of it.、Mm. If your body is feeling the love. There's simply nothing you can do about it. You can try to stop loving someone, or if you don't love someone and you think they're medically compatible and they're、uh, they're financially compatible and then everything aligns and you don't feel the love for them, you simply cannot make yourself love them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like you can't love what you don't love. You can't not love what you do love. And this is so. That's what I think. That's what makes it so beautiful. And that's what、um, neuroscience has helped me a lot in the sense of accepting that. Accepting that it's just simply a biological state that your body is in, and you can choose to fight it, you can choose to deny its existence, or you can choose to、uh, downplay it, devalue it. There are many different approaches to it, right? But you can also just choose to accept it and enjoy everything that comes with it. Great.、Absolutely. Give values to your feeling, validate your own feelings, and that's such a. I don't think, I don't think, people talk enough about this. Like you feel what you feel, everything that goes through your mind and your body is validated. You don't need somebody to tell you. You don't need a society to tell you whether you should feel something or you shouldn't feel something. There is a reason that your body is experiencing something. It's telling you something is wrong. It's telling you something is right.、Yeah. And the more acceptance you have towards it, the easier you will flow in your life. 
um, I mean, to, to a lot of people, it might mean different things. Um, cause I remember, I think I had a conversation with my grandpops this one time. I'm like, you know, why, why do you choose to marry my grandma? And, you know, I was expecting something very grand and bourgeois. And he just said, <laughs> oh, like, you know, like when I'm around her, I'm just like, I'm calm. I'm like, that's yeah. it. You know? So to him, that's love. Oxytocin. Exactly. We know that the concept of neurology, neuroscience, neuroplasticity, um, it's there. It's, it's valid. It's here now. Neurogenesis and things like this. Do you think that we can socially engineer ourselves as a society, as a person to be more, should I say, I don't want to say more loving because that might be very vague, um, you know, to be more, more empathetic. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Absolutely. It is. Empathy is actually something that can be, it's actually quite debatable whether it can be trained or not, because if you look at the neuroscience of empathy, there is the theory and it's been yeah. proven quite frequently these days in the past few years is empathy comes from this neuron in our head called mirror neuron. Yeah. And what it does is that when you are with somebody, if you're a very highly empathic person and the other person is feeling something, your mirror neuron will actually mod modify your brain to be in the similar state than this person, uh, as this person that you are speaking with. And that kind of uh, activity is different in each mind. So, uh, so for example, in sociopath, they, they have done this fMRI study, uh, scan on a sociopath's brain. When they are shown faces of frightened people or the faces of excited people, their mirror neuron stays completely dormant. There is no activity whatsoever in that region. So they simply cannot relate to other people's emotions. So to really try to get those, um, if someone is, and it's a nature nurture uh, process, they, they are not necessarily born that way. They're not necessarily just raised that way. It has to have a certain kind of um, triggering of a certain gene uh, sequence in your, in your DNA for that to be uh, activated as a trait. Um, for you to be actually classified as a sociopath. So there is a sense that you can train yourself to allow yourself to feel more of the emotions that you're feeling when your mirror neuron is reacting to other people's um, feelings. Yes. That I think is a possible thing, but to uh, alter how active it is, I'm not perfectly sure. Sure about there that. Is, I, I've, yeah, I've done research on that recently, and I don't think I found any empirical data to support it. But I'm more than happy that. to learn more about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so great. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. So great. that's actually part of the reason why I do the nonprofit work that I currently do is that I really hope that there is some kind of approach where we can use neuroscience and uh, psychology, all of the latest cognitive science, and merge that into a uh, a systematic approach to nonprofit projects to help people actually develop more self-awareness, more kindness and acceptance so that we have more room for compassion to go around. And, and we have more room and we can enable people to feel more comfortable, to be empathic. Because one of the things I have currently, I feel like I've observed so far is that some people just, they are empathic 
but they don't dare to embrace their empathy. Mm. Because when you're in a toxic life uh, environment, no matter if you have a toxic boss, you have a toxic parent, you have toxic toxic spouse, right? Like some people in your life, they are um, they are they're less fortunate, so they were raised uh, in a condition that put them into a more um, battle like position. Yeah. So they are more easily to be triggered, and they're more likely to uh, show acts of aggression and uh, less concerns for others' pe- others' feelings, for example. And under these conditions, if you are a completely empathic person, you're super full of compassion, and you want to offer help and whatever, right? And you leave yourself open to attacks. You're you you expose your vulnerability because when you're being empathic, you really you're flowing with the other person. You're really yeah showing all of your um, sore spots, basically, right? Yeah. And so sometimes, sometimes if, if you're exposing it to a person that's not in the headspace, who's just simply not at the moment able to reciprocate that kind of empathy, you yeah. might actually end up getting hurt. Yeah, right? absolutely. And when you get hurt in that state, what do you feel? You feel stupid. You're like, yeah. oh, why did I trust that person? Oh my goodness, why would I ever do that to myself? Never again would I show my vulnerability to a new person, right? Yeah. And that's not an environment that nurtures empathy, that nurtures the expression of compassion. And so through, through, through my nonprofit work, I, I am really hopeful, hopeful that there's some kind of systematic change that can be done into the world that we're in to influence people to be more accepting of themselves and be a little more relaxed, for example. You don't, there is no need to be aggressive. I hope people can understand more that hypervigilance is not always the best option, despite sometimes it seems to be the best option. Mm. Yeah, I mean, powerful, powerful. Um, I, the word I was actually looking for the other time was to be more emotionally intelligent. And I think you've just summarized everything in terms of if we did have a society where people were more emotionally intelligent to the needs of other people, um, and, and that includes also knowing when not to enable um, someone else who's going to take advantage of you as well. Um, so if we can get to that point, you know, the whole world, honestly, will just be a better place. When I read about what you guys were doing for my friend, I was like, hmm, I need to have a conversation. I need to have a conversation. So I really look forward to, um, you know, you guys smashing it and just making sure that all of this thing and everything works. Um, I don't want to keep you for too long. So we're going to wrap it up here because I know you have to go. So thank you for coming on the show today. Um, where can people find you if they want to find you? Your social media handles? and uh, They can find us at www.pulse-branding.com. Okay. And if they want to find me, I am not super active on social media. Ooh. Right now. Ooh. Uh-huh. Is there a reason why? Um. No? Definitely, but I'm trying to pin down which reason. There are so many reasons <laughs> that's kind of just merging together, leading me to this, uh, this do, point. Do you but have if a they Twitter? really want to find me, I don't. They can find me on LinkedIn, though. Like, that might okay. be the best place to land me, yeah. <laughs> fine. LinkedIn is a much more professional... I'm reaching out for business type of 
connection. Right. Okay. So no Facebook, no Twitter, no Instagram. I do. I just don't use them. It's like <laughs> if I don't use them, I don't feel comfortable telling okay. people to find me there because okay. then it's like I'm ghosting them when I'm when I'm simply not there. <laughs> when you're not there. Great. Right. Great. Anyways, I will add um you know the link to where people can find you in the show notes for today we need to do this again we need to do this again there's just so much that we have to talk about yeah we will find some other time to talk about all of this things so see you next time and be safe out there okay all right bye